Please take your copy of the Bible and turn to today's scripture reading, which can be found in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, and verses 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. So glad you're here today, and uh, what a great weekend. I know Joe Whitmer already mentioned it already, but uh, my goodness, such a phenomenal opportunity Friday and Saturday to uh, worship together in the uh, Christmas musical. It was just a a fabulous uh, experience for all of us. So thanks to those of you who were involved in that. And I also want to express gratitude. You, you don't always know who's behind the scenes with every service, but what you see here doesn't just happen every day. There's a group of people that serve in our tech serve area, and uh, they served all weekend long and then got up early to serve you again today. And often you don't notice them until something goes wrong, and you're like, who's back there? Today? You know, you're kind of looking around. I just want to honor those brothers and sisters because they do a phenomenal job every Sunday. I also want to um, highlight for you that uh, coming up December 31st, we start the new year out with uh, prayer week, kind of a tradition of what we've done around here, uh, believing that uh, all of us need to pray more and not less. And so I want to begin the new year as we have for the last number of years with a specific focus on prayer. And uh, we'll be having prayer events throughout the city, uh, different locations, things of that sort. You can check the website for all of that. But December 31st, we are doing a 24-hour Bible reading and prayer time where we have a, a Bible up here. You come in in 15-minute increments, read Scripture, pray in the sanctuary. And uh, that sign-up has already begun. And uh, you could sign up online. There also is an old-school pen and paper and little time slot. You can put your family's name on there. I want just to encourage you because those time slots are going fast and the premium spots like two and three in the morning, those things are just clicking away right away. So, you know, if, um, if you're one of those super spiritual people want to come and pray early in the morning or you're just like, that sounds cool. Let's try it. And, uh, so th- those are available and you can sign up, um, today. Also want you to know that in light of everything that's been going on this, uh, weekend, things of that sort, we're not going to be having our, um, Monthly, monthly Fresh Encounter uh, prayer service tonight. So just want to give our, our team and everyone just a, a Sabbath uh, this Sunday evening. So uh, that's happening, not happening this evening, okay? Uh, let's pray. Let's get to work on Hebrews 4. Father, we need your help um, because our lives are so often filled with fear. And I pray today that you would allow me to unpack what the Bible says about fear and what it means that you, Jesus, have released us from fear. So would you help us to hear your word today? We need to hear it and we need to receive it and we need to be set free. And so we come asking for your help and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
During the month of December, we've been using Charles Wesley's hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, a hymn that he wrote in the 1700s or so, as the overall outline for our time leading up to Advent and really all of the weeks in December. Uh, we've, we've seen things like, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, Born to Set Thy People Free, and now we're at week three, From Our Fears and Sin Release Us, Let Us Find Our Rest in Thee. Two weeks ago, we looked at Galatians 4 and the way in which hope comes through that text loud and clear. We saw that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, and we connected the sovereign purposes of God in sending forth Jesus, orchestrating all of the events of that. We connected the sovereignty of God in that moment to the sovereignty of God in all of our lives. Because the reality is we all need to be comforted that the same God who orchestrated the first advent, the same God who's going to orchestrate the second advent, is the same God who's orchestrating all the events of our lives. That's really important, especially if this Christmas holiday is difficult or hard or disappointing. Then last week we looked at Ephesians 2, and specifically looked at the doctrine of regeneration, what it means for God to call people out of the tomb of their own self-destruction, what it means for the new birth to have taken place, what it means that Jesus has set us free. I'm pleased to tell you after first service, we had somebody who heard God call his voice and was gloriously converted, hearing God call him out of his own tomb. So we've seen um, hope, we've seen power, and today we're going to jump into this idea of what it means to be set free from our fears. Then next week, Joe Bartimus is going to help us understand Luke 2 and its connection to the, uh, I think it's the fourth or fifth line, which is Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art. That'll be next week. And then the following week, December 29th, even though we're beyond Advent, we're going to wrap up this hymn with a treat. We're going to do something we've never done before. One of our aims as pastors and elders is to be sure that our church is not just a place that delivers the gospel and delivers programming and helps you to grow spiritually, but also that we raise up the next generation of godly leaders. That's one of the reasons why we have a pastoral residency program, a a two-year program for a guy who's come out of seminary or out of Bible college as as he begins to move into ministry to really help refine and shape those gifts and and all those talents. And so uh, December 29th, we're going to have one text. It's Revelation 21 verses 9 to 27, but on that Sunday, we're going to have three different communicators of God's Word. So first service, second service, and third service, all are going to be young guys in the ministry, part of our staff, and uh, you're going to have a veritable feast of preaching on that day. So Dustin Crow, Bob Martin, and Jeff Baller will preach in each of those three services, and uh, we want to help them as they grow in their preaching and teaching ability. And some of you ought to join me and a couple of other pastors. We're staying all three services to help cheer these guys on and also evaluate their sermons. But um, to... um, To encourage them in their in their journey, and so it's just gonna be a great Sunday. It's gonna be fun. Yeah, some of you just, you just need to stay all you know three weeks. We're not having a table or a or anything like that, right? It's just it's just gonna be a a really fun moment to see them use their gifts. You know, I, and I really want you to encourage them. Charles Spurgeon said every preacher needs a little old lady to say, "You're the best preacher I've ever heard." You know, so he also reminds us that that little old lady says that to every new preacher. So, but anyways, you, you, I want to encourage you as you encourage these men as they follow God. God's call in their life is a privilege to be a part of their lives and to see um, just what God's doing. So that's going to be the last Sunday of the month. It's just, it's going to be awesome. So today we're connecting three key words, the words fear, sin, and rest. Fear, sin, and rest. And we're going to use Hebrews 4 
And that line, from our fears and sins release us, let us find our rest in thee, from Wesley, to answer this question, what does it mean to be released from our fears? I've wanted to talk about this for a long time. Here's why. Because I know that the Bible says that we're released from our fears. I know the Bible says perfect love casts out fear, but here's the deal. I'm still afraid. And I'm still afraid a lot. So is that sinful? What do we do with that? What does it mean that Jesus set our, set us free from our fears? So last week's sermon was very theological. This week I hope will be very practical because after all, fear is a part of our experience in the world as human beings. All of us have experienced fear. Some of you have particular things that you're afraid of often and there's good reason for that. Fear is one of the symptoms of the brokenness of our culture and I think it's an emotion that all of us can identify with at one level. We may not all be afraid of the same thing or the same things, but we all at times have fear. We fear things like dying, aging, a loss of vitality. I was doing an event with uh, Pastor Dale Shaw this summer. And I commented on the number of, of men who had entered this competition over the age of 50. I said, I can't believe how many people were in that class, and then how well he did in comparison to all the other people in his class. And he said, well, I have a theory on that. I said, what is that? So I, I think a guy hits around age 50, he starts realizing that the clock is ticking, so he starts getting really more active, right? Some of you, that just brought conviction, because you're like, no, I, I just sit more. You know, so I mean, it's... it's the, 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 but that, that was his theory, that, that we fear aging and and, and vitality a lack of vitality. We fear rejection. Some of you have been hurt so badly and all someone has to do is just act a certain way or say something and it's just, it just creates some significant, strong emotions. You fear abandonment. Some of you look to your, towards your future. You fear, how do I provide for my family? You, you fear a future crisis. You know 2014 could be a challenging year. Some of you experienced a job loss in the past or you're a little nervous about your job presently. Some of you know what it's like to be really sick and you fear not getting well. When will I ever feel well again? Maybe you fear come having another report back from a doctor about cancer and you go in for your next treatment in the next month or in the next blood draw and you just, there's just a sense of fear. Or, or maybe this Christmas is bad because there's a family member that should be here that isn't and you think, my goodness, what if we lose another? We fear the future for our children. We fear about their success. We fear what our culture will be like the next generation and beyond. And I could go on and on and on and on and on about all the kind of things that we fear. The point is this. The point is simply that fear is embedded in the fabric of everyday life. So what does the Bible say about this and, and how do we lean into it? How does it relate to the matter of Advent, the Advent of Jesus? So let me just start this way, my introduction, that sin created fear. So think with me, if you will, about where is the first time that fear shows up in the Bible? Well, the very first place it shows up is Genesis chapter 3. Hold your place in Hebrews 4. Let's go all the way to the beginning and see this. Genesis chapter 3. Fear enters the world after Adam and Eve listen to the temptation of Satan via the serpent. Fear enters the equation after they violate the command of God, after they eat the forbidden tree, 
And this is what theologians call the fall. This is where Adam and Eve fell. They fell into sin. And as a result of this sin, everything is contaminated. Everything is affected. In Genesis 3, look at verses 8 and 10, it tells us the story of what happens as God approaches these human beings who have just sinned. And we see the first appearance of fear. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day in the garden. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was, what's the next word? Afraid. That's the first time you see it in the Bible. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. This this word for fear or afraid is the same word that can be translated as reverence or respect or dread. And frankly, in light of what Adam and Eve had just done, they were right to be afraid. So in this context, fear is tragic, but it is appropriate. Right? You have a holy God who's walking in the cool of the day in the garden, and you have Adam and Eve who have just violated his single command, and they're hiding because he has promised that their actions will create death, there will be consequences, and so a holy God walking in the garden when you're a sinner is understandably and appropriately scary. So Adam and Eve should be afraid. So sin created fear. Think of this, that prior to this moment, there was no need to fear. There wasn't any fear. There was no violation of God's command. There was perfect harmony between God and mankind. And the entrance of sin into the world changed all of that. It brought separation between God and mankind. It brought a flawed world. It brought punishment and it brought death. So just as death is a constant reminder of sin, so to fear as a byproduct of that violation of God's heart is also a reminder that we live in a broken world. Fear is a direct result of sin. Sin created fear. Now in a little bit I'll show you how this connects into Hebrews chapter 4. Now all that to say, I've run into people before who have said then all fear is therefore sinful. You should never fear because fear is always sinful. And I'm not sure that's the right nuance. In fact, I would argue that not all fear is in fact sin. So part of the challenge of dealing with fear in the Bible is there, there are certain kinds of fear that are sinful, but at the same time, fear is actually commanded throughout the Scriptures. A few examples. 1 Peter 1, verse 17. And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time, the time of your exile. So the idea is that we're to conduct ourselves with fear, so fear is commanded. Or 1 Peter Two seventeen. honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Or Acts chapter 9 and verse 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord. So actually this idea of fearing the Lord is a statement about spiritual maturity. And then here's another one, one of my favorite ones in all the Bible, Philippians chapter 2. In fact, let's read this together to get the sense, shall we? And look for the word fear. Therefore, read it with me, my beloved, as you has always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Notice that. 
that we're to work out our salvation with fear. So fear in this context isn't bad, it's actually commanded. So my conclusion then is that it would be wrong to simply say fear is sin. In fact, there, there are sometimes clearly in the Bible when to not fear is actually to sin. In fact, I mean, wouldn't you agree that having an appropriate fear is a mark of maturity? As you grow up, you realize bad things can happen, and you're understandably afraid. I mean, if you raise boys, you know you pray that they'll get this into their mind. My my wife has uh, well said that she just... It's amazing that, that any boy lives above age 10, right? Because they just, they have no fear. It's like a part of their brain that doesn't develop and it's just, it's just not in them, you know? It's just like, look, if you light that, it'll blow up. Cool. It's like, what? Well, it'll blow your face off. Really? You know? That dog is mean. He'll, he'll tear your arm off. Can I touch him? It's just like, what? It's, they have no, so as a child gets older, particularly little boys, as they get older, they realize bad stuff happens, things blow up, dogs bite, now, people can be mean. If you jump from a two-story building, you might break a leg. I mean, you know, things of that sort. And you begin to get in their brains that you should be afraid. That's a mark of maturity. One of the joys of having older children is they're starting to get that bad things can happen. So, so part of being a mature follower of Jesus is understanding that it's appropriate to have a sense of fear, but fear in the right things. So fear could be taken as honor or respect. To to fear God means that you understand who he is and you understand who you are. You get it about the difference. You understand your limitations. You understand what it means to honor God. And fear in this context is a mark of maturity. So as we build our understanding of fear, first, fear is an emotional response to the brokenness of the world, and that's a normal and a natural response. And then secondly, fear can be appropriate and right. It's just a part of the created order. Here's the other thing. In the midst of all this, the Bible also says don't fear. Don't you love that? This is really complicated, isn't it? So you have fear is, is because of sin. Some fear is commanded, and then we're also commanded not to fear. This is, this is the way the Bible works, because this is the way life works. That it's not as just so easy or crystal clear as saying, just don't ever fear. Or when, when Wesley says, from our sins and fears, release us, it doesn't just simply mean that we never fear anything ever again. In fact, the Bible tells us that we are to battle fear. When talking about anxiety in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says this, Fear not, therefore you are of more value than many sparrows. Regarding possessions, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus says this, Fear not, little flock, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So he just, he opens it wide up. Do not fear. God wants to give you the kingdom. And so therefore he says, so sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief appears and no moth destroys. So this, you know how this applies? This applies. Next week we take our Christmas offering. And some of you are going to look at what God wants you to give in that Christmas offering. And you're going to have a little thing inside of you that says, oh my goodness, if I give this then, and a fear will come into your soul. And how do you, you battle that? You battle that with Luke chapter 12 and the promise that fear not. Little children, God aims to give you the kingdom. Therefore, give it away. Sell your possessions. Give liberally. Give generously. And in so doing, you are saying to your fear of lack of provision, I trust in God, not my checkbook. It's a huge statement. A very powerful statement. 
That's why the Christmas offering is not just about the needs around the world. It's actually about our ability to slay the idol of covetousness. When it comes to fearing people, Hebrews 13 says, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That may need to be the verse that you quote as you pull into Aunt Margaret's driveway over the holiday season. These people are weird. We're going in, you know? And so you're like, what are we going to do? Well, I will not fear. What could happen? What's the worst that could happen? They could kill us. Yeah, even that, right? So they could be really awkward, could be really yitzy like it was last year. They could be snarky again. Well, okay, let's, what will we fear? What can man do to me? Hebrews 13, 6. God's gifted all of us, and Paul said this to Timothy regarding using his gifts. In some cases, using his gifts to people who weren't so interested in him using his gifts. He said, I remind you to fan in the flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying out of my hands. For God has given us not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So you put all this together, and what you see here is a sense that there's something about fear and belief. Whatever it is that Jesus and Paul are commanding, or the writer of Hebrews as well, whatever they're commanding here about fear, is when fear begins to eclipse belief, that's when it becomes problematic. That there is a kind of fear that becomes unbelief, where you fail to believe in the promises of God. So, I would argue that Fear at one level can be an appropriate response to a broken and fallen world. There are things in life that are just straight up scary. They are scary. They will always be scary. They are. They should create fear or you don't get it. And yet at the same time, those things shouldn't hold us in bondage. There are greater promises that eclipse our fear. And so that even while we are still afraid, we still choose to trust. That's why the Bible can say fear not. And yet at the same time, say, fear God. So the issue of fear is complicated. Fear was caused by sin. It's commanded by God in respect to himself. And identified as sinful when fear looks like unbelief. And you and I have to figure out in our lives, when is my emotional reaction to this moved from something that's understandable to actually unbelief? That's the key. Now, what is God's solution? And how does this relate to Hebrews chapter 4? See, the beauty of what Hebrews 4 does, and as it relates to Advent, is this idea of Christ coming to release us from our fears, positionally, and then also practically helping us to fight the battle of fear. So I'm not sure that releasing us from fear looks like I'm released and I never fear again. Instead, I think what it looks like is Jesus has set me free, and when I am afraid, I trust in him. What does God do for us? Well, look at Hebrews 4. The first thing he does is foundationally, he changes our relationship with himself through atonement. So the first thing that God offers to us is atonement. Look at verse 14. He says, We have a high priest, or since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. He uses this little term, high priest, as a marker for something really important. The high priest 
was the main representative of Israel who went into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement to make an offering of sin for the sake of the people. And, and once a year he would go in, sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat in order to cover the sins and to change the people's relationship with their God. And Jesus, through his death, the Bible tells us, goes into the Holy of Holies figuratively by offering himself as that sacrifice. So Jesus not only is the high priest, but he's also the sacrifice. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. Take your Bible, look at, look at Hebrews 10 and verse 11. The text helps us by summarizing this idea of atonement. It says this, and every priest, this is Hebrews 10 verse 11, and every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which never take away sins. So all that he's doing, this Old Testament priest, it never really fundamentally deals with the issue of sin. It just covers it, but sin keeps coming back and the need for more atonement happens year after year after year. Verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sacrificed, so the or sanctified. So what Jesus is doing here, according to the writer of Hebrews, is he is presenting himself both as the high priest and the sacrifice in order to make forgiveness or atonement possible for those who put their faith in him. Now, why is this so important? Because faith is the solution to fear. In that, fear has been caused by sin. If you address the issue of sin, then you can deal foundationally with the matter of fear. If the problem of fear is there because of our relationship with our God, and if Jesus offers atonement in order to bring reconciliation between mankind and God, then that will eventually settle the issue of fear. In other words, where there is no sin, there is no fear. And then throughout the New Testament, the various writers pick up on this theme that our relationship with God through Christ has been radically altered. Take, for instance, Romans chapter 8 and verse 15. Notice the the linkage, or the contrast, rather, between fear and our position as a son. Paul says this, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So the point is, is that when a person receives the atonement offered through Jesus, there is a fundamental change in your relationship with your God. And you are no longer like Adam and Eve, hiding and fearful because of the shame, understandable shame of your former condition and because of your actions. Instead, the Bible says that we're adopted, we become his children. And as a result, there is a spiritual releasing or a changing of our relationship with God such that we are released from our sins and our fears. 1 John 4 says this, By this is love perfected with us so that we have confidence for the day of judgment. Remember that word confidence. We'll see this word again in Hebrews. Because as is... Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. 
For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Now, this is a great verse when it talks about the reality of our fundamental relationship with God. But please don't use this verse, as somebody did with me about ten years ago, to say if you ever fear, it means that you've never really had perfected love. That is not what this text is saying. It's saying that my relationship with my Creator has fundamentally changed. Therefore, there's confidence in the day of judgment. Romans 8.1 says that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It means that our relationship with our Creator has been restored, that God has set in motion a fundamental change in our relationship with Him through atonement through His Son. Perfect love is thus cast out by fear, or cast out fear, rather, not cast out by fear, By dealing with the reality of sin, what God does is he deals a death blow to fear. So that's what Jesus did positionally. It's what he did by virtue of his atonement. He changed our relationship with God, or he made it possible to have that relationship change. Secondly, the text also tells us that in becoming a man... We have a Savior who struggles. So God's solution to fear is to help us to understand a Savior who really, really, really struggled. There's a connection between Jesus' experience and ours. The writer of Hebrews, Hebrews presses this as the means of offering hope and encouragement. And Boy, I hope that that you understand what this text is saying and that you could receive... This this passage has been very helpful to me and you can receive the same kind of help that I have received over the years in dealing with my own fears in realizing that Jesus really understands. So what does it mean? How does he really understand? It means that Jesus experienced the, 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 the limitations of humanity. He felt the swing of emotions, the struggles of what it means to be human, that he fought temptations... And I want to suggest to you that there were moments in Jesus' life when he was afraid. You might say, well, where do you get that? Let me show you. Go to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. We we learn in this part of Jesus' life, as he's moving towards the cross... He's anticipating everything that's going to come. He he knows the wrath of God. He knows the holiness of God. He knows the weight of sin. And and, and he knows what is coming. And so John chapter 12 and verse 27 says, Now is my soul... What's the next word in your Bible? Troubled. Troubled. He knows what's happening, and his soul is troubled. Now, you can think of that. He's despondent, yeah. He's concerned, yes. Would it be okay to say that he's afraid? He's he's troubled in the sense that that he sees what's happening? Even if you just like the word trouble and you want to keep it with the word trouble, go to John chapter 14 and verse 1. Because I want to show you a a little bit of a challenge of what we find in in the scriptures here. Is that Jesus just said to his disciples, my soul is troubled. And then he says in chapter 14 and verse 1, let not your hearts be what? Troubled. So did you get that? Does that create any tension in your mind? It should. In John 14, Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. And yet, in John chapter 12, he says, my soul is very troubled. 
So what's going on here? And the one level, Jesus is feeling and experiencing something, and on the other, he's telling his disciples to not be like that. So what is happening here? In one text, he's saying, believe in God, John 14. And in John 12, he's saying, my soul is troubled. John Piper, in his book on future grace, says this. Jesus was warning the disciples against giving in to despondency, yielding to it unopposed, letting it fester and spread. And so he says, fight back. Believe God. Believe also in me. The first shockwaves of the blast of despondency are not sin. The sin is in not turning on the air raid siren and not heading for the bomb shelters and not deploying the anti-aircraft weapons. See the difference? I think this is important to understand, and I think it relates very much to the matter of fear, a a close companion or a close relative of despondency, or a close companion, or maybe even the same thing as being troubled. Because there are many, 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 many moments in your lifetime as a human being, even after you come to faith in Christ, after you call yourself a Christian, after you really are a genuine Christian, when you will be genuinely and legitimately afraid. And sometimes people can get this in in their head, that if I feel fear, then I must be failing. Or if I'm afraid, it must be that I'm not really trusting. When it comes to grief, for instance, and a whole other subject, some people in their recovery process think that I'm, I'm really whole or I've really recovered when I'm not grieving anymore, when I'm not sad anymore. And that's, I don't think that's the way the Bible paints grief. Instead, the image that I get from the Bible is that even while we're grieving, we're still trusting. So even while we're weeping, we're still joyful. Even while we're hurting, we're still clinging. Even while we're trembling, we're still trusting. That's the image. It isn't that grief just goes away. It's that it is eclipsed and overpowered. And grief and faith go hand in hand and they walk together. But grief doesn't rule you. Faith ends up leading grief to the cross. In the same way, I think fear... Fear may always be a part of your life at some level. Certain things that happen, someone says something, a particular circumstance or a scenario may take place. In some respects, um, fear is legitimate because you really know what's going to happen. You know the fact that this is not going to be easy. And somewhere in your gut, you think, you know what, this is going to be hard, and I know it's going to be hard. And spirituality doesn't look like you being a stoic person with no feelings. doesn't matter. It's just... We're just going to do it. Who cares if it's scary? When down deep, you're really scared. I've sat at the bedside of people who were dying, and they were afraid to acknowledge that death is scary. As if somehow that meant that they weren't a follower of Jesus. It means that even though you stare death in the face, you still choose to believe. Even though you face the scariest things in all of the world, you still choose to believe. It means that even though the devil would throw death and sorrow and ailments your direction, and even those things, even though those things are real and they're hard and they're difficult, it means that you still choose to trust in Jesus. I've also run into believers who think that spirituality is acting as if those things aren't really scary. And in some cases, they're either naive or they're not very honest. When the fact of the matter, it seems to me that faith 
and fear can coexist. That the fear doesn't become unbelief. It just is what it is. And it's eclipsed with the power of what it means to really believe in God's promises. And so while you still are a bit afraid, it's no longer empowering you or controlling you. Oh, sure, there is a line that it can be crossed in unbelief. Fear can certainly be sinful. But what I am saying is there are many times in life when you really understand that this is going to be difficult and there's a thing within you that says, I'm still a bit afraid and yet I still choose to trust. That, I think, is the spirit of what it meant for Jesus to come and live and walk among us. If, if, my, if my understanding of this is right, then when you read Matthew 26, you see Jesus in the garden and, and you, you see him troubled, you see him despondent and see him even afraid. We also see him fighting He doesn't allow the fear to dissuade him from God's plan, even though he is fully aware of what it will cost him. So Jesus isn't some emotionless, stoic figure who walks to the cross. He battles and fights the same kind of emotions that we do, and he refuses to surrender to unbelief. You know why that's so helpful to me? Because I need to know that when I pray and cry out to him when I'm afraid, that Jesus, you know what it's like to look at the scariest thing in all the world, and in spite of the fear of what you knew was going to happen you still chose to believe and trust and follow the commands of god and that for me has been incredibly helpful so released from fear does that mean like i've never been afraid again no no no. what it means is that fear doesn't control me that's the difference here's the third thing What the writer of Hebrews offers us here is assistance when we tremble. So in those moments when you are trying to trust and you are trembling under the weight of what it's going to cost you, and yet you choose to trust, God promises an outpouring of mercy upon your life. That's really helpful. Especially when you read a text like this in Hebrews 4. Let us then with, what's the next word? confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need what does he mean confidence confidence because our who we are and who god is we're still human and he's still divine we're still sinners and he's still holy how do we have confidence when we come into his presence we have confidence because of the person and work of jesus our confidence is in him not in ourselves and so we come to that throne with confidence in order so that we can receive what we need That word confidence means courage or boldness in the face of something that's intimidating or dangerous. It means that in the midst of all of our experience of life, that we can have confidence knowing that Jesus understands and that as we pour out our heart to him, he is ready to pour out mercy and grace to help us in time of need. You ever experienced that? Oh, I hope that you have. A sense of, Lord, I'm so scared. I'm so nervous. I'm trusting you, God, but I'm still afraid. I'm going to choose to obey you even though I am afraid. And God pours out grace and mercy upon you. And you feel the sense of of empowerment or boldness or peace. So you're afraid and you're at peace. It's a crazy, beautiful thing. And you know it's God who's pouring out mercy upon you. 
Verse 6 says that you might find grace to help in time of need. The whole context of Hebrews 3 and 4, and for that matter, chapter 2, is about persevering so that you'll enter into the rest. Keep going. Don't quit. Don't fall into unbelief. Keep persevering all the way to the end. Hold on. Hold on. And the encouragement that he gives to us in the midst of a broken world is this. And you're clinging and in your fear and in the fact that, that you've got Jesus who is interceding for you and the fact that he understands he's ready to pour out mercy and grace to help you. So the invitation is to seek God's help when we face things that would shake our faith because of our fear. It means that while we tremble, we still trust. It means that we can echo the words of the psalmist in Psalm 56.3, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. Even though the scary reality of this thing that's in front of me is not going to change, even though the reality of my what I feel may not change, I still am going to choose to trust in you. And you're going to give me mercy and grace that's going to eclipse the fear. The fear may still remain, but your grace and mercy will conquer that fear. And I'll choose to follow you and obey you. That's what that means. From our fears and sins release us and let us find our rest in the rest. Let me just press in three things. For, first, you cannot truly rest without a relationship with Jesus Christ. <laughs> Sin and fear are directly related. And if you've never crossed the line from unbelief to belief, you've never given your heart and life to Christ, if there are moments when you think about death and you wonder, so what happens to somebody who dies and they've never addressed the issue of their relationship with their Creator? Or what if the claims of the Bible are true? What if hell is real? And if there's a sense within your soul that when you think of those things you feel a bit of fear... That is a very good thing. Because listen to me, you don't want to be a sinner standing in front of a holy God. You ought to fear that. And that ought to drive you to deal with the work of Jesus on your behalf. In that respect, that fear can be a great push to ask you, So what are you going to do about the difference between your life and God's commands? The Bible's answer is to receive Christ. That's the answer. But in the interim, God sends warnings to us by virtue of that fear. So when I talk about eclipsing fear, there's no way you can eclipse fear apart from the work of Christ. In fact, that fear is just going to always be there and it will never really fully be addressed without a personal relationship with Jesus. And so I'd invite you today, if you're not a follower of His, the move from being the enemy of God to being the friend of God, the move from being a person who is under His judgment to being under His mercy is simply the means, it happens by means of you saying, Lord, I'm a sinner and I'm done with me. I need to receive Christ. That's how you deal with fear. The fear of God the fear of the consequences of your own sin. Here's the second thing. If you're a follower of Jesus, there will be times 
that create the emotion of fear. And I think that it's important to see that for what it is. That's a feeling. And those feelings, while real and significant, and at first, I don't think sinful, those feelings need to be treated as feelings. And they just need to be like two-year-old children. And I hear you, you're loud, you won't stop, but we're just going to make you sit down and we're not going to give in to all of your little demands. You know, the older I get, the less I trust my feelings. I've dealt with people who have been trapped in guilt because they frequently battled fear. And they felt like every time they battled fear, they were failing because they were struggling and because they were fighting. As if real believers don't struggle with fear. And I would tell you, real believers do struggle with fear. They don't give in to fear and there's a world of difference. Does that make sense? I've dealt with people who put on a good front. Acting as if true spirituality is being stoic and unemotional and never acknowledging that this is really scary. And they approach really scary moments of life as if, oh, there's nothing to be afraid of here because real spiritual people don't ever be, don't ever get afraid. And I would tell you, I don't think that's real. I think somewhere deep in your core, you are afraid. You just can't or won't acknowledge it. Somebody after first service told me that they interviewed their grandfather who fought in World War II and he said, there's two kinds of soldiers in the world, those who are scared and those who are dead. <laughs> But courage is not the absence of fear. But courage is choosing to act even though you are afraid. Here's the third thing. And that is this. For all that I've said to justify fear at one level, I want you to know that faithful followers of Jesus do not allow fear to rule their lives. And you've got to figure out when does it cross the line. Faithful followers fight fear the kind of fear that tells them lies, the kind of fear that begs them to disobey God. If you do this, it'll go badly. The kind of fear that whispers in their ear that God has forgotten about you. He's abandoned you. Fear can become unbelief. And when it tips into unbelief, you must fight it with all your might. And how do you fight it? You fight it with the promises of God's Word. You have to know the Scriptures to fight the promises of fear You have to fight it, the lies of fear. You have to fight it with the promise and the hope of God's word. You have to do what Jesus did in the garden. He's he's up there, he's struggling, he's troubled. He he gathers his closest friends around him. He says, would you pray for me? He goes alone and he pours out his soul to the Father, asking for another way, please remove this cup, and yet he's submissive to the will. Why does the Bible tell us that he asks? He asks to have the cup removed. You know why? Because he's real. He's human. He's wrestling. He doesn't want this cup at one level, and yet it's what he wants with all his heart and soul. And this tension is what he's battling with. Jesus knows what it's like to deal with the tension of not wanting, but wanting to do the will of God. Realizing that this is going to be so hard and so painful. There's any other way, and yet I love your will more. And so for the joy set before him, he endures the most difficult, painful, horrendous, most fearful thing in all of the universe. And he does it for our redemption. And he does it as a man so that when we enter the world, we can know that when we pray, we have a Savior who gets it when it comes to bone-chilling fear. He understands what it's like to tremble and yet also trust. So if you find yourself trembling, God, I'm so afraid, but I'm not giving in. I'm going to trust, but I'm afraid, and I'm trusting, and I'm afraid, but I'm trusting. That is the battle. That's Christianity. That is what 
I think Jesus did, and it's what the writer of Hebrews is calling us to embrace, that we not allow fear to rule us, that from fear, in that respect, Jesus has set us free. And while fear and death and sin are very real, they no longer have ultimate authority over those who are in Christ Jesus. And He has set us free from unbelieving fear. A perfect love, perfect love casts out that kind of fear. Let's pray. Father, oh, I ask that you would help us with our struggles and our real battles with emotions that sometimes won't go away. And I have to believe that there are There are people who are going to be on this campus today who have to battle fear all the time. Some of them for really legit reasons. They've been wounded. They have seen the dark side of life. And I pray that in the midst of their battling with fear that you would cause them to believe and trust in you. Thank you, Jesus, that you became a man entered into this world, wrestled and struggled and fought so that when we pray, like even right now, you, you understand and you're ready to pour out mercy and grace upon us. Lord, for those today who have every reason in the world to be afraid, and they should, because they're not in a right relationship with you, they've never addressed the issue of their fundamental condition. They've never become a Christian, I pray that today would be the day that they would see and believe and trust. Thank you. The Bible is this practical, that it helps us know how to fight emotions that can easily become sinful unbelief. So help us to cherish the promises of your word and believe you, even while we're still afraid. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Afterwards, there'll be some folks up here who'd love to pray for you if there's something going on in your life, something you're afraid of. They'd love to pray God's help into your soul, all right? I love you, College Park. Thank you for coming today. God bless you.